0: Okay, let's just pray because with a title like this, I think I need prayer. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts to receive what comes from you and to reject those things which are not meant for us. And fill my words with your spirit that they might make a difference. Amen. Um, I wonder, is there any chance of us not having this spotlight? Maybe there isn't any chances. There we go. That's great. Thank you. feel much better now. Science and faiths, why am I talking about this? Well, it started off being laziness, okay? Sometimes that gets you into bigger messes than you realize, because there were some services that needed filled, and I said, well, I've done this before, I can do it again. I've got it sitting on the computer, so why not? my wife will bear testimony though, having worked on it a little bit through the week, yesterday I decided, nah, that won't do at all. This is not working. And really why it wasn't working, for me anyway, was that I had originally set out a pretty academic discussion of the issues that surround what's often seen as the conflict between science and faith. Now, there are a number of reasons why that's a bad idea for me to do that. The biggest one being we have people, well, one person at least, in David Livingston in this congregation, who's far better qualified to talk about that. But I have a slight advantage over David in this area in that I do science and he doesn't. So I thought, make it personal. They can't knock you for that. So that's what I'm going to go with. Is this something we need to think about? For some people, of course, it's directly relevant to what they do every day. That's the sort of situation I find myself in. I live and work as a scientist. Most of you don't. I totally understand that. But from having been away, particularly at the youth weekends, uh, the teenagers weekend, These issues do come up as issues that some folk find distressing or challenging. And without demonizing him too much, but he will come up several times, of course, Richard Dawkins has been in the bandwagon of this process, more or less looking for a fight, essentially, with anyone who chooses to take a position that says there might be room for faith, for belief, outside of his realm of scientific belief and evidence. And I know that some of those folk felt that they were not in a position really to answer that. And I thought, therefore, it might help a little bit for all of us if I at least explain what my position is as someone who does this day to day. Now first of all, I think we need to sort out what we mean by these things. What do we mean by science? You think that might be rather self-evident, I suppose, but of course there's a whole discipline called the philosophy of science that have been arguing about this for about 120 years now and they haven't come up with an answer. Scientists are not big on philosophy, so we just don't worry about it. We sort of kind of go, I'm a scientist, therefore by definition what I do must be science. Uh, and don't maybe get much deeper than that. In my specific world, what I do is I work in the realm of physiology, which is about how living things work, and I teach medical students and try and get them to buy my book to eke out my pitiful academic salary. And if you look then at the research websites, you'll find this wonderful statement as to what I do. It says, I'm interested in the role played by intracellular calcium in the control of contractility in smooth muscle, particularly in retinal microvessels. So that's that sort of then. (laughs) See, this is one of the problems with science. We use language that nobody else can understand. Religion does that quite a lot too. So maybe some of the misunderstandings arise out of this. But anyway, just to give you a kind of a feel for the sorts of things I work out, I'll try and explain this a little bit more. Every part of the body needs a blood supply. Most people kind of understand that. And if that blood supply gets messed up, there's a problem. This is a picture off the back of your eye. Well, maybe not your eye, but somebody's eye. Hopefully yours looks quite like this. And it's got a lot of blood vessels in it. And these blood vessels are supplying the retina, the bit that's like the film in an old-fashioned camera or the chip, the light-sensitive chip in a modern camera. It's the bit that detects the light coming in and sends out signals to the brain where they get made into pain somehow, and that's a real mystery. The blood vessels are very small. The ones we're interested in you need a microscope to look at, and so we say the retinal microvessels, the ones that supply the retina with blood, and they're the very little ones. Now we're interested in how these little blood vessels how they control the supply of blood to the retina. And this works through having muscles. You've got muscles in your arms and legs and everywhere, but you've also got muscles inside you. You've got muscles on your blood vessels. And here we have a a little cartoon that our PhD students did for us. A very multi-talented guy. started doing a Bachelor of Divinity, did that then did a master's in computing and is now doing a PhD, just finishing a PhD with us in image analysis and the sorts of things we work in. turns out he also plays the mandolin semi-professionally and is a first-class artist. You just don't meet many people like that. We do tell him routinely he's very annoying, but he's very nice and quiet too, so it's hard to get excited. So he has all these little muscles around the tube down the middle. And on the other side, you can see a picture of one of these blood vessels taken with a special sort of microscope that allows us to look what it would look like if we could cut it down the middle without cutting it down the middle. And you can see little cells, these long ones on the inside and the little circular ones that are surrounding it. And they control how much blood gets through by contracting, like turning the tap off, or relaxing and then that's like turning the tap off. So we sort of take pictures of these things and the one that's all in color is a picture taken with one of these special sorts of microscopes which have lasers in them instead of ordinary light. And these allow us to look at what's happening inside the cell And if this works properly, we should be able to get a movie out of it. Now, we were really excited the first time we saw that. (laughs) That's how sad our lives are. We spent a couple of days going, how cool is that? So these are just the little blood vessels, and... Whenever the mountains get high and bright, that means in that bit of the blood vessel, there's a lot of calcium. And when that happens, they contract. Now this had been seen in other things, but we were pretty sure we were the first people ever to see it in these particular blood vessels. So we thought, that, that's, that's not bad. To be the first to see anything's quite good. And then we wanted to know how that all works, and we took other sorts of pictures that look at how different Bits of the machinery are arranged inside the cell, and that's the bottom one. And it should do something as well. Yeah, it should roll around and round. And you can see that's a single cell, and that's with, it, with all its brothers and sisters. And it's got what well, the, the bright bits, the lines, are actually showing how one molecule is distributed within that cell, where it is and where it isn't. And that helped us answer a question about how it worked. So we come up with all of these pictures. We make measurements. We come up with ideas about how the thing is working. That's our hypothesis. And then we do something to change what's going on and see if it changes what happens in a way we predict if our hypothesis is right. That's an experiment. So that's what we do, and when we've done enough of those, we kind of gather it up and we say, yeah, there's a sort of a story here. And we, whoops. Oh, I never like that. I've got the spinning beach ball of death here. We'll see in a minute, if anything, if it sorts itself out. You can't see it at least. There will be now a short intermission. (laughs) Might be longer than short. Yay, happy days. So we make our stories, as they say, we write them off. And other scientists who work in the same field say really rude things about them. They're really annoying. And they have all these reasons why what we're talking is rubbish, but eventually if you can persuade them that it's not totally rubbish and it's not really incredibly boring, and boring is a very different measure in science than you're used to, trust me, and then you end up with a paper. And they have exciting names like, they've got words like spatio-temporal in them and they've got words like elementary building blocks. And this is to make them sound very important, of course, so that other people will quote them. We're working on the movie rights from some of these, but Johnny Depp's holding out at the minute, so we're not sure where we're going. So that's sort of what I do, and in some variation, it's what most professional scientists do. You take observations. You get ideas about why what you're seeing is happening and then you test those ideas a bit more by doing more observations and changing things. What about my faith? What do I believe? Well, I believe all sorts of things, but in terms of my personal religious or Christian beliefs, these are the things that I believe. I believe that God exists and that he made the universe. I believe that Jesus is his son, that Jesus died on the cross because of my disobedience, and that I'm accepted by God as one of his children because of what Jesus did, because of his sacrifice. I believe he rose from the dead and that Jesus is coming back one day and that he's going to bring all of God's people, those who are alive at the time, those who are dead, He's going to bring them all, bring us all into a life that's more amazing and more permanent and more real than anything we can imagine. And in the meantime, I believe he has left his spirit with us to try and help shape our lives to be like Christ. So that's what I believe. Now, I clearly don't believe those things for the same reason I might believe some of the ideas we have about retinal microvessels. I haven't done carefully controlled experiments in which I remain neutral or sceptical about the outcome. I haven't kind of waited until all those results are in before I reached any opinion. My beliefs are a matter of this thing of faith. We've had a definition of faith. We have the definition that we got out of Hebrews in that first verse. However, you think about this, that is clearly not the scientific method. So, up front, I'm going to accept that the way my faith works and the way my science works, those two ways are quite different. And I actually can't see any way of persuading yourself otherwise. However, I don't necessarily think that matters much. There are others who do. So we've got. Oops. We've got this idea that because they have this different approach to thinking about life, that this must mean war, that the two cannot be reconciled. In fact, that we've got to fight with each other. Some Christians say this. Some Christians effectively say we have to oppose science, particularly where science contradicts the things we believe or appears to. And of course, one big focus for this is the area of evolution and those who feel that that's totally incompatible with their understanding of what the Bible has to say about God as a creator in Genesis. I'm not going to deal with that issue, it's one that people get really hung up on, except to say this, the thing that distresses me most about that debate is how unloving Christians are with other Christians within it. They beat each other up over it. I don't know what that is exactly, but it's not Christ-like. How we disagree about things matters just as much as what we think about them. There are also some scientists who say this means war. In fact, who have made a large amount of money about uh, persecuting this war, as it were. I don't think that was the motive. I think the motive was genuine personal conviction. But this is Richard Dawkins. He, he was a professor in Oxford. He has now kind of gone freelance because uh, I think, as uh, someone said to me, he's now bigger than Oxford. So <laughs> it's a point of view. Um, Alistair McGrath is originally from here. He did a PhD in biochemistry in England, had an atheistic background and belief, and then became a Christian, and now teaches in Wycliffe Theological College. He has written about this and his book's useful. But I think this is a fair summary of what Dawkins really believes. It seems self-evident to Dawkins that the natural sciences must lead to an atheist worldview on the part of any honest, intelligent person. Those who believe in God are therefore either dishonest, deluded, or stupid. So do we just have to pick a side? Is this what we're left with? We can pick scientific rationalism and reject faith in God as some weak, minded if comforting kind of delusion. And of course Dawkins has called it the God delusion in his book. Or do we pick belief in God and we reject science as being spiritually impoverished, secular materialism at its worst? Is there another way? Or is war really the only game in time? Well, thankfully, not everyone agrees that it has to be in war. And this is a statement by Guy Freeman Dyson, who works in the Institute of Advanced uh, Study in Princeton, which is where Einstein spent most of his life uh, working. I mean, he looks like a mad scientist. You know this guy has got to be a mad scientist. The ears are dead giveaway for starters but this is what he has said science and religion are two windows that people look through trying to understand the big universe outside trying to understand why we're here the two windows give different views but they look out at the same universe both views are one-sided neither is complete both leave out essential features of the real world And both are worthy of respect. So that's a view where the two can work in parallel without necessarily having to fight to the death. Another one who backs this up is this statement. This is by... A statement by the late Stephen Jay Gould, he died a couple of years ago. He was an evolutionary biologist, that's what he worked in. Evolution was his thing. He's got wonderful titles. The Alexander Agassi Professor of Zoology, Professor of Geology, Biology, and History of Science. And He did this all at Harvard, which is generally regarded as being not Dusty, a kind of place for these things. If you're wondering in the picture, he's the one on the right as you look at it. And he has said this, science simply cannot by its legitimate methods adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. We neither affirm it or deny it. We simply can't comment on it as scientists. Freeman Dyson would have had a personal faith, pretty non-Orthodox, but certainly a faith. Stephen Jay Gould, as far as I know, didn't. But these scientists, and I think they probably do count for the bulk of people, they're not the ones you hear about in the media, because where there's no conflict, there's nothing to talk about, it appears. But this, I think, is the majority view, that there's Room for coexistence, probably working independently, although there are other views of how this can work, and conferences held this year exploring the possible relationships. But this goes right back to the very original kind of evolutionary propagandist, if you like. And I didn't really mean propaganda there. I think he was presenting the case but presenting it much more forcefully in public debate than Darwin ever could, because he was sort of quiet and retiring. And this is T.H. Huxley who became known as Darwin's bulldog. And Huxley actually coined the term agnostic. It didn't exist before him. He invented it. He said science is agnostic. In other words, it doesn't have an opinion on the existence of God. Now, I know there are those who feel that that's not true, that there's a lot of evidence in science that points to it. In my personal experience, God does not come into the equation when we're doing the science. Does that mean he doesn't exist? No, it doesn't. He's excluded by the rules of the game. He's not allowed to be mentioned. No external, non-material, supernatural force can ever be mentioned or it would be taken out or not published. It's part of the rules of the game. And this has many benefits, because it allows me to work with atheists, agnostics, those of the background of Islam, Buddha, any religion, or none, and we are agreed on the rules of the game. That doesn't mean the things we have deliberately excluded don't exist. It just means they're not part of the scientific discourse. So that's my first point, there's no philosophical necessity, nor even a very strong historical precedent for assuming that science and faith can't get along peaceably side by side. But what about the arguments of Dawkins, if we want a little bit more than just saying i've got a lot of guys on my football team and they're as good as the guys on your football team so let's call it a drop we want to go a wee bit further than that and have a little bit of understanding of what the arguments might be beyond that what is it that dawkins is worried about what does he not like this is one of his strongest statements i think a case can be made that faith Is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. Faith, being belief that isn't based on evidence, is the principal vice of any religion. This is a statement against all faiths. It's not about what you believe specifically in a faith context. He's just saying, no, we don't want any of it. We shouldn't let it exist. This is scary stuff. He even at one point, and he's kind of pulled back from this, but at one point suggested in his book that bringing your children up in a specific faith belief should be treated as child abuse. Now I think at that point he was getting to the point where he's saying, what can I say that will make a stir? Because he tends to retract a little bit when pushed. But if we take this statement, there are a couple of different assumptions in it that I think are worth challenging. The first is that faith is exercised in the complete absence of any evidence. He never justifies that. He just says it's true. The second is related, and it's more subtle. But there's an implication here that there's some other way of living, some way where we can use purely rational, evidenced-based thoughts, decisions, ideas, and we use only those to guide our lives. I think both those assumptions are false. Now this is where it gets a little bit, maybe tedious, I'm sorry, but it's the best I can do because we have to think about what we mean by the word evidence here. Got thrown in there, we have to think about what we mean. What counts as evidence? Well, the first thing you can say about this is that it's different in different situations. Maybe the easiest way to think about this is a court of law. Depending on whether it's a criminal or a civil case, the level of evidence required to establish guilt is different. So in a civil case, it's fine if it's on the balance of probabilities, but in a criminal case, you move to the beyond reasonable doubt definition. So because criminals seen as more important, you have a different definition of what counts as proof. And disciplines are academic disciplines are very much like that. These are sort of this is a little population map of different things that people work at. And at one end we have mathematics. Now mathematics is wonderful because mathematics deals with intellectual certainty. It's the only area I know of where what is true is true is true is true forever. Once a theorem is proved, it's never disproved. If it was, the proof was wrong in the first place would be their point, and that tends not to happen. They're pretty darn careful about that. So they deal in intellectual certainty The only problem is the number of issues that you can state in the right language, the language of mathematics, to be able to get that certainty are rather limited. If you move then to the experimental scientists, physics, chemistry, and biology, and there's already a big spread there, you may not think so, but physicists are renowned for the statement, there's physics and everything else is uh, stamp collecting. So so even in this, there's this broad spread of what counts, and that's because physics is very mathematical. Chemistry and biology, we do things and we're much more qualitative. The things we say are true, we're, we're allowed to say they're true, but everybody knows we might be saying they were not true next year, and that's not a problem. It just means some new observation has come along that makes it more likely that we have to think about them in a different way. But we try and get some sort of objective evidence, preferably something you can measure and work with that. We like that. Once you get out then into the psychologies, the economics, the histories, these kind of deal with evidence as well, but it gets a bit fuzzier. Because some of the things deal with people and how people behave, And you would not believe how difficult it is to measure what people do. Because they say they're going to do one thing, but actually they would really do a different one. So it's very hard to know what's going on. And by the time you're out to things like philosophy, it's almost more about clarity of thought, novelty of the notion, rather than the idea of evidence. And then we get out to music, art, literature, all of which most people would accept have something important to say about life, but none of which really work from an evidence base. So we've kind of got a decreasing intellectual certainty, but the problem is there's increasing human importance as the intellectual certainty decreases. These are the things that matter most to most people. And if you want to pull in things like your politics, your morality, your personal beliefs, how does that work? Where, do you, where does this sort of proof based on evidence come in? You see, I think nearly all of us work from beliefs and preferences that are not based on external evidence that is objective and measurable in the way that science tries to. And I don't just mean people with religious beliefs, I mean everybody. It's impossible to live your life without doing this because you just don't have the information that you would need, who knows even what that would look like. So my argument is everybody pretty much exercises faith a lot of the time in their life, they may not call it that, but in so far they're directing what they do and what they believe based on things which they cannot prove and could never prove. They're exercising faith. So my first problem with Dawkins' statement is I can't see how other than giving up and leaving the planet, you can avoid exercising beliefs that aren't based on evidence as I assume at least he's using it. But what about myself? Why do I believe what I believe? Obviously my family background and upbringing has an influence on this. but. As I grew and became more engaged with it personally, became influenced and convinced by the biblical evidence about the person of Jesus, I became convinced that the sort of person I was, with my natural selfishness, that there really was no hope for me other than the message of the gospel of grace, that God would accept me nonetheless because of what Jesus had done. That he looked at me and he saw his son. I find evidence in the sense of relationship I have with God through reading the Bible, through praying, through reading what other Christians have written, through you folks, through the church, through being with you. And I find evidence for it when I look at someone who's done something hugely generous, and I know it's motivated by their faith. You see, science, biology, your biology, my physiology, could never motivate me to care for someone who needed cared just because they needed cared for. It doesn't deal with any of those things. It never mentions what should you be doing for somebody else that never It's just not considered to be relevant. It's relevant if you're living in the real world. And people of faith often do these things. This is my experience. You can say it's nonsense, you can say it's all subjective, but it doesn't make it go away because it's my experience. And no one else has a right to really dictate what that is or what it means. It is of course subjective evidence and it's based on emotion more than reason in many cases. But then all our relationships are based on emotion more than reason. My love of my wife and family is not based on some rational analysis, but it's on my sense of belonging to them, of loving them, and of them loving me. One of the big problems with thinking about these areas, the things that really matter in the scientific way, is you can't really think about testing them. If I take a dispassionate view of a relationship and try and test how strong it is, we know what's gonna happen. It will break. As soon as I've decided to do the experiment, the outcome is determined. It may not be rationally satisfactory, but it's part and parcel of what it means to be human. In human affairs, it's faith and trust that lead to a deeper experience of love, not doubt and skepticism. Some things are just a lot bigger than the molecules that they're made up with. And these things are still evidence, even if they are evidence. I'm very sad that Chris Morris isn't here today because this was a quote for him from one of his favorite authors, Terry Pratchett. This is written in uppercase because it's spoken by death and death always speaks in uppercase in Terry Pratchett's novels. And this is what death says at one point. He says, take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder, and sieve it through the finest sieve, and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy. And yet, you act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some rightness in the universe by which it can be judged? Well, sometimes you just have to choose what you're going to believe. Even not believing involves a step of faith and sitting on the fence really isn't an option. I choose to believe that justice and mercy matter and I believe there is a rightness in the universe by which it's judged. And his name is Jesus. Faith is not irrational. But faith takes us further than reason can ever go. It doesn't require us to believe impossible things. But it does involve belief in things which are impossible to prove. And it shares that characteristic with our sense of justice, our sense that the weak deserve a voice. It's a close companion of love and hope. These are all things which we can't measure. But they're things which, without, life is barely worth living. Ultimately, then, faith is a choice. takes us beyond logical certainty. But it wouldn't be faith if it weren't so. You have to make a decision. What way do you want your life to be shaped? All I can say is that the evidence of a great host of witnesses, whether they're scientists or not, is that in choosing Christ, We choose life. Amen.